You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 154. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. Welcome to the first part of my interview with the stunningly multifaceted Julie Nathanson. You may recognize Julie from her performances as Samantha Maxis in Call of Duty, Silver Banshee and Julie in Suicide Squad Hell to Pay, Jess Black in Far Cry 5, Captain Scarlet Turner in Elena of Avalor, and Crimson Widow in Avengers Assemble. Not only is Julie an accomplished voice actress, but she's also a professional screenwriter as well. She was a staff writer and then executive story editor on the NBC TV series Just Deal where she was nominated for a Writers Guild Award for one of her episodes. She's written and consulted on games such as Guildlings, an RPG currently available on Apple Arcade, and Vader Immortal, a Star Wars VR series. If that weren't enough, she also has a master's degree in clinical psychology. Julie's interests are wide and far-ranging, which is one of the reasons I was so eager to interview her on the podcast. In the first part of our discussion, we go all the way back to the beginning, when Julie was only six years old, to find out where her fascination with acting comes from. She shares with me the story of her first time on stage, and how the absence of one of her fellow actors in their first-grade pageant inspired her to step up and save the show. We also talk about her parents and how their work in psychology influenced her. She absorbed a lot from their study of the emotional life of the human mind. In fact, her father even asked her to edit some of his writings on the subject. Julie's parents always respected her intelligence, never talked down to her, and made sure to include her in their adult conversations. Her parents were very multifaceted as well, which helped inspire Julie to think outside the box when it came to making her own career decisions. Not only is Julie a font of energy and enthusiasm, but she's also put a lot of thought into her journey and you can hear it when she speaks. I can't wait to share her insights with you. So without further ado, here's Julie. And now, the feature segment. Hello, Julie. <laughs> Hi, Kristen. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me over. Absolutely. Absolute pleasure. I'm very excited to talk to you about all things voice acting. Um, to let our audience in a little bit on your specific journey, how did you get started as an actor? Let's see. As an actor, I began, well, I was six years old. Uh-huh. <laughs> Professionally, I, I began after college. Well, let's start um, with six years old. Well, six years old? Okay, yeah, yeah. okay, so for real. So um, so I do vividly remember mm-hmm. the very first time I had to be on stage, and I was in first grade. Mm-hmm. And my mom loves this story. Okay. Um, so, I, so there's no way I could ever possibly forget. Sure. 
Um, it gets dragged out every Christmas. Uh, constantly. Yeah. I mean, every you know second. She told mm-hmm. me on the car ride here. Um, so uh, I don't remember what we were necessarily doing for this little skit, but it was in front of the whole school, first grade. And I know that I was in the... In, in the, the second sketch. And in the first sketch, I know there was this kid who was supposed to come in and be the weatherman. Mm. And, uh, and he didn't show up. Oh, dear. And, uh, and I put on his suit jacket, mm-hmm. put my hair back in a little ponytail, and I went out as him. And I didn't realize it, but I had memorized everybody's lines. I knew the entire... I knew every single person's lines in every sketch we were doing. Okay. And so I just embodied the weatherman. And then it was my turn to do my character, and I changed my clothes, and I embodied the next character. So this was a play in <laughs> this first was grade? or some sort of, like, presentation where there were skits. I don't even know. It wasn't, like, a formal... So it wasn't, yeah, it wasn't a formal play, but you had different skits or different yep. scenes. Mm-hmm. And you had been rehearsing... This is first grade, you first said? First grade, yeah. How does one get involved in theater in first grade? It honestly was just... Hey, it's a first grade presentation. Parents are going to come. And I don't even, I mean... This was is, everyone in the class in it? Or? Everyone in the class was in oh, okay. it. So we this were doing is... some kind of presentation. Gotcha. All the parents were there. I remember looking, you know, there are my shining, smiling family people in the front row and, you know, silly eyes at me and yeah, yeah. looking at them. And, and I was just like, oh, this isn't going to happen. This, J- Jimmy didn't show up. This is uh, this can, yeah. this shall not stand. Yeah, and uh, and I, and I was like, all right, I, I know his lines. So th- this is amazing. So this is this was a, a basically you didn't audition for this. No, right. Everyone had to go through this. Yeah. But you had become so swept up mm-hmm. in the process of yeah. putting on these presentations uh-huh. that you had on your own recognizance uh-huh. memorized the entire script of the every scene. The entire script, so that. Throughout everyone's performances, I apparently was mouthing everyone's lines along with them and backstage. So the entire thing was memorized. And performance-wise, like, the characters were different to me. So I was able to be both characters. It was ridiculous. And I was six. So let's not, you know, this is not an Oscar-worthy performance. Sure. (laughs) But I don't think any other six-year-olds were doing what you were doing, were they? Was there anyone else of your classmates who had memorized all the lines? No, I was never like anybody else. I was always weird. (laughs) That is very revealing, isn't it? Yeah. What do you think it was about your childhood mentality or psyche that this was so fascinating for you that you memorized everything i think it was immediately fun to me okay i think the idea of performing in some sort of formal circumstance and again this was not a grand theater experience sure (laughs) Whatever we were doing had a weather person in the in the scene. Yeah, but getting um, up in front of parents at all can be nerve wracking for many people. I was so excited. I remember okay. I I remember peeking out behind the curtain and watching my parents walk in. I remember being so excited to see what the audience liked that we were doing. Mm. I remember the fun of having to memorize lines mm. and thinking that that was an exciting exercise. Um, I think in terms of how I ended up memorizing everything, like my brain does remember odd details at times. I'm not like your trivial pursuit person, but like I had a fascination with pie, which I still do. And the number, the number, or pie, the, the food, it, the mathematical constant. <laughs> no, I don't actually care about pie. Physical. The, 
I don't. I don't care about it's pie and cake. Pie. But if you give me all of the potato chips, I will ruin them. Gotcha. Like I am much more savory. So you're savory, not sweet. Got and it. this is why you invited me here was just to talk about those things. Of course. Um, but yes, I uh, I I was bored in eleventh grade math class, and the um, the border of our um, of our math class, that the the upper molding was replaced by the first sixty one digits of pi. Ah. So I just memorized them because I was bored. So then I that was my cool cool chick party trick sure. in uh, college. Yeah, I yeah. Was, I was that awesome, Kristen. Wow. I was that awesome that my party trick. Yeah. No, no, not lipstick with the cleavage. Nope. Yeah. I'm going to tell you pie. So (laughs) that started apparently in first grade with memorizing everyone's lines. But I think I also, I I think it was so much fun for me. I had been doing these really silly things at home. My mom um, always talked about how humor was so important to me. And I loved to sort of offset any anxiety with humor, which I still do. Um, So maybe it was sort of a a feeling of... of, um, I don't know, finding my place a little bit. Sure. Um, but, yeah. Because <laughs> for me as a child, I was terrified. The, it, oh, the, really? it took quite a lot of convincing to get me to get to the stage. Oh, wow. And when it happened, it was because I fell in love with being backstage. Like, wow. the idea of being part of creating the illusion. And also, I, I was, it was at the opera. So my, my grandparents, as I've said in other mm-hmm. interviews, were big patrons of the opera in Chicago. And so they always wanted me to be an extra in the opera. Mm-hmm. And I resisted for years until I realized how cool it was backstage at the mm-hmm. opera. And yeah. then I was like, oh, okay, well, then I'm into this. And then mm-hmm. I couldn't see anyone in the audience because mm-hmm. the theater was so big that you literally can't make out anyone in the audience. Yeah. So they just became an impersonal mass. Mm-hmm. And so that, that worked for me as my entry point. But if you had told me at six years old... We need you to get on stage. I don't know if I could have done it. It's funny. I, I, the the opera connection. I don't know if you remember one of the one of the first things I said to you, and I didn't know that you had this history. Mm-hmm. But one of the first things I said to you was, "You're an opera singer, aren't you? <laughs> you sing because your your speaking voice is so beautiful and so resonant, and obviously oh, you make you. a good living capitalizing on on stuff like that. But <laughs> <laughs> there's there's also an element of of musicality to the way that you speak. Mm-hmm. And um, at my father's house, my father and my stepmom had you know season tickets to the Metropolitan Opera, and I grew. Right. Up on Grand Opera, sure. Um, so I, I certainly know that world there pretty you go. well. Yes, um, but yes, I, 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 um, I was always more comfortable getting out on stage and performing. Mm. I've always, I've always had kind of a big personality for a wee person. <laughs> was that something? Was that encouraged uh, by your parents? Was your family very uh, sort of demonstrative and gregarious, or was this something that was unique to your personality? Um, I'm going to say it's probably a combination. I don't think that my, let's see, it's, that's such a complicated question. My, sure. my, um, my father was a psychiatrist for 50 years. He spoke all over the world. He was um, an author and a theorist, and I'm sure we'll touch on that at some point, but um, mm-hmm. his work was very influential um, in my life and in my academics. Um, and he was performative when he was on stage teaching or when he was, uh, you know, doing some sort of lecture. Um, my mom is still a practicing uh, private practice psychologist by day. Mm-hmm. And by night, she's a blues harmonica player. I was about to say, she fights crime. No. She pretty much does, but she does it with a harmonica. And <laughs> exactly. It's so badass. Cool. Um, and she's, she's really uh, otherworldly. Mm-hmm. So her, her regular life, 
she can really connect in and and um she, I mean she's gregarious and a fun person but she's very able to be grounded and centered and empathic mm-hmm. um and she's she's quite brilliant um and then by night my mom would run out in boots and a miniskirt and go out until the the wee hours in the morning and like rock out on her harmonica mm-hmm. and she was like a different person mm-hmm. um so at least in terms of having an eclectic sense of self mm-hmm. that I absolutely got from my upbringing, you know, mm. in addition to being a, a theorist and an author and a psychiatrist, my father also was an antique dealer and he was also a silver mm. dealer and he did a clockmaker. I mean, there were a lot of things happening at each house. Gotcha. Um, and I did grow up with an appreciation for having many interests. In terms uh-huh. of being performative, you know, I think some of it might have been by default. You know, I've I've had my struggles with anxiety throughout my life, and I have found that a portal to centeredness and groundedness can be humor for me. Gotcha. Um, and I think as a kid, also having this unbridled energy that I've always had, mm-hmm. um, had to find a place. And I think the place where I seemed most at home was probably in theater. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've you know I've been I've been considered too much for most of my life hmm. and as a grown-up i own that now gotcha too much too much in what way i've always had a, like a huge amount of energy and enthusiasm and excitement if i have i have a lot like i think i'm a um I don't know if you're familiar with the term um the highly sensitive person hmm. no I'm not so sure and there's a real i'm i'm eating this book right now called Wired to Create, um, Mm. which has to do with um, the psychology and the neuroscience of creativity. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things it touches on in the the book is that one link um, that can be found with highly creative people is this high degree of sensitivity. Mm. So being sensitive to the world around you means that perhaps you have a larger reaction to a tiny thing in the world. Right. Maybe a bright color is the brightest color you've ever seen, mm-hmm. right? Maybe um, a hurt feeling is a huge hurt feeling. Mm-hmm. Maybe joy means that you, as they said in my high school yearbook, would be most likely to turn cartwheels in the parking lot, ah. which is how I've always been. Gotcha. So that kind of thing. So being extra sensitive to the world around me, I mm-hmm. think, has always been something that I've carried with me. Mm-hmm. Um, and now I see it as such a benefit. Sure. Right. So six years old, you have this interesting experience. <laughs> Was it clear to your parents how much you were invested in this acting process? Yeah, I think they knew right away yeah. that I loved it. Um, I wanted to get... I wanted to have singing training very early. Um, like seven years old? Yeah. No, really? my, yeah, very much so. And, okay. and my, um, my family was very concerned that I would end up sounding um, like, you know, the, the dolls that you pull the string and then uh-huh. they like just so, um, I don't know, too perfect. Like, I don't know if you remember that in, in the olden days there was a, a show called Al Albert's Showcase. No. He's like it was kind of like what pageants are, so oh, okay. like the little pageant, you know, pristine, uh, very perfect thing, and um, and that was not something anyone wanted for me. So when I was sixteen is when I was finally allowed to take um, classical voice lessons, 
But before that, I was certainly doing plays in school, and, and I was, um, you know, taking whatever classes I could. I think I did, um, did some studies at Villanova. I grew up outside Philadelphia. I did some oh, okay. um, some some other classes that were, you know, at, at a college or in a, a performing arts camp, whatever I could get my hands on. So but, between six and sixteen, you were you uh, you were taking acting classes at school, and I would. Well, I went to a nearby university. I did some sort of outside classes there. Um, and I did mostly just audition for whatever came my way at school, which is uh-huh. just, you know, whatever plays you put on at school. Um, and I don't think I did anything formal. I mean, I wasn't really allowed to mm. at that time. Did your school have acting classes? Yeah. Well, oh, not, not, it's hard to explain. We had like, like regular drama classes that you could take. Okay. It wasn't like a big formal acting school or anything. I went sure. to Quaker school. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, but, I mean, there's some schools that don't even have yeah. arts classes. But, you know, my, my, my school, my high school did have acting classes. But ironically enough, I didn't really take one until probably my senior year. But oh, I had really? been auditioning for uh, shows all oh. through, you know, freshman, sophomore, uh, junior year. Um, but I had been taking classes, um, summer theater yeah. uh, programs and whatnot. Okay. So I was just curious if yeah. most of your... It, 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 you were auditioning for all the plays at your school? I did all the plays at the school. Okay. I was, yeah, and I, and I was um, in most of them. I was, you know, lucky and it was really fun and, and it was a, a lovely little group of us who sort of always did <laughs> the plays the together. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and I was, you know, part of the drama club and I was, yes, I always took the drama classes. Um, and, uh, and I also participated in some, like, community theater during the summers if I could or performing mm-hmm. arts camp. Um, but the formality of, and now you're going to be a professional actor, was not something that was necessarily promoted by my family, but it wasn't mm-hmm. issued by them. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, incidentally, when I went, I know you're going to put a pin in this, but when I went back to school get a, to get a master's in clinical psychology. <laughs> of course, like you do. <laughs> which I'm sure you're going to want to ask me about at some point, so I, please forgive me for doing this out of order. But we had to do um, a paper in which they wanted to know the, they said, you have to find out the origin of your own name. And I was like, there's no origin of my name. Mm. I was going to be Brian if I was a boy. You know, I came out, my mom was like, oh, we like the, you know, the name Emily, but oh, you look like a Julie and there you go and that's it. I was like, I'm not, this is stupid. I go to my mom like, obviously I know the story, it's just the name. And she was like, actually, that's not true. I was like, what's the story of my name? Oh my gosh. She said, well, they handed you to me. And your eyes <laughs> looked as luminous as Julie Christie's eyes in the snow in McCabe and Mrs. Miller. <laughs> and I was like, you named me after Julie Christie? <laughs> and I'm at this point, like, well into my adulthood. Yeah. And she said, yes. I said, why didn't you ever tell me? And she said, I never wanted you to feel pressure to be an actor. <laughs> Well, you, yeah. that's good job, Mom. Yeah, well done there. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Okay. So apparently I'm somewhat named after Julie Christie. Well, there you go. And but no pressure to be a, an actor. That's, that, I mean, come on. That's, that, that's like a Grimm's fairy tale, right? We want to make sure that this little girl never becomes right. an actress. What will, yeah. shall we do to make sure that happens? Oops, do? look, the opposite happened. Mm-hmm, the opposite. <laughs> I know. She also would take me every day after um, uh, preschool to dig for worms. Okay. Mm-hmm. And cool. then also um, sort of scientifically, you know, check out what regeneration is all about. Gotcha. I grew up in a pretty um, princessy area. 
and my mom didn't want me to be a princess, ah. which is another funny little irony sure. in my life. Um, but yeah. <laughs> Gotcha. <laughs> Understood. Yeah. Um, uh, so at 16, it sounds like something shifted. What shifted was I finally got permission to take formal singing lessons. Uh-huh. And and I had, I had almost given up singing because I was so upset that I hadn't been permitted. And I remember uh-huh. my father was very happy to, you know, if I wanted to get lessons, no problem. Um, I, as I said, my, my parents were not together. And there were sometimes differences of opinions between the houses. Gotcha. Um, but I remember saying, explaining to my mom that I felt like this was something I very much wanted to do. And I felt really let down that I wasn't able to explore it and study it. Uh-huh. I am the kind of person who, when I have an interest... Um, I get really curious and I want to dive into it and I want to know everything. Mm -hmm. So not being able to study singing Mm -hmm. wasn't really fulfilling to me. It was painful for me. Um, And she heard me and and granted permission. So uh, no one was afraid that I would have a pageant voice anymore. And I studied at the Bryn Mawr Conservatory of Music with um, uh, Catherine Baroni, who was the, uh, um, the director of the conservatory. And she taught me classical voice. I just wanted to sing opera. I yeah. 16. Wow. That's, which is amazing, right? <laughs> I mean, I liked singing opera when I finally started my uh, operatic training, but it was much later. It was, it was uh, during uh, middle of grad school before I started uh, formally training yeah. classically. Um, but I, I didn't have any um, problems with the culture of opera, operatic mm-hmm. singing, because I've been raised in it. Right. But the, the person, my coach, uh, was recommended to me by a friend of mine who was in the touring company of Les Mis. Oh. And he was very much, uh, he was a tenor, and he really wanted to be a musical theater tenor. Hmm. But his voice really lent itself to opera. Really? And so his coach kept saying, you know, you really should do opera, mm-hmm. but he had a psychological block against mm-hmm. it. And it was so funny because here he was in Les Mis, one of the most operatic of the musical theater mm-hmm. things. So it was like, huh, whereas when, when she said, okay, we're going to have you sing, you know, La Boheme, I go, no problem. You know, like, sign me up. <laughs> I got no problem with that. <laughs> um, so, uh, so you were classical training, singing mm-hmm. opera, mm-hmm. legit vocal production. Mm-hmm. What voice part are you? Uh, soprano, lyric soprano. I used to be, I would say, coloratura range. I was going to say. Yeah. Um, but, but probably at this point, lyric. lyric. soprano. Yeah, probably yeah. lyric at this okay. point. And so, uh, and then uh, it was time to go off to college, yeah? Yes, it was. So before, so just, uh, let's see, I know you want to stick with the acting thing. I will just say that for me, the exploration of performance always Again, because I have um, so much curiosity as a part of who I am, mm-hmm. um, exploring writing at the time was also important to me. Ah, uh, yes. So um, as part of our drama class, there was an invitation to uh, participate in the Philadelphia Young Playwrights Festival. Uh-huh. So the first year I entered, I got third place, and the second year I got first place. Wow. And that um, that play was because that, that one... Um, was uh, because it got first place, got to be performed with professionals in the Philadelphia theater world, and I got to sort of um, experience what it was like to have sort of a slightly higher level production of something, and and that kept me really excited. I loved the process of of writing this play, and it was a one act, and um, each one was. And then I continued playwriting through college. So as I was, when I applied to college, I knew I wanted to be working on performance. I knew I wanted to be 
um, working with my love of writing and love uh-huh. of reading, um, which is why a liberal arts college was the right thing for me. <laughs> sure. So when did you start writing? These these uh, competitions were in high school, yes? They were in high school. So okay. when I was, um, I guess when I was a junior, uh, junior I got third place, and in, uh, when I was a senior, that was when place. I got first place. But mm-hmm. when did you start writing? I had been... Well, I have books and books and books of poetry that I had written. I know that sounds so silly, but that was also a passion of mine, and I loved it. Um, I didn't realize how fluid writing could be for me until someone sat me down at a typewriter Ah. and a little little word processing action, um, and it changed everything for me. Handwriting has always been labored for me. Okay. Um, it's difficult. It's a bit illegible, and uh, I find it painstaking. Gotcha. And my brain works so much faster than my hand. Sure. <laughs> so being able to type just changed it for me, and I was able to. I, I my father gave me a typing tutorial um, mm-hmm. software, um, and I was able to learn to type so quickly that I could actually translate and transmit what was happening in my brain to paper. Much faster. And, yeah. yeah, and that changed everything for me. Yeah, and I yeah. remember, I, I think that was in like sixth grade where my essays just changed completely. Wow. Yeah, and it was it was wonderful because I'd always, I'm, I'm a logophile, I've always loved words. I've had dictionaries of weird words since I was a kid. I'm obsessed with language, um, but I didn't, I didn't understand that I could have the facility to truly put so many words together mm-hmm. <laughs> in some kind of flowing prose mm-hmm. until I had a keyboard in front of me. See, that's so fascinating because um, I, being a technologically precocious young child myself, having one of the early Macintosh computers um, and wanting to do things digitally, mm-hmm. the keyboard didn't always help me. Oh, really? It, because I don't, because I am primarily, the sense that I use most is my ears, not my eyes. Hmm. So when people would try to explain writing to me, they would do it visually, which didn't always parse very well. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't until, I think it was my, my, my choral teacher said, why don't you talk it out? Like, why don't you, and then I, what I found was that I would speak what I was trying to write in my head and so I was basically transcribing an internal monologue as wow. I was writing at the computer. Because if you asked me to do it visually, it would become weird and stilted and it didn't flow. And I didn't, I, I had a hard time putting together a logical argument or making sense of things. But if you let me talk, mm-hmm. then it would come out. So then basically me sitting at the computer, which is why when I read, I tend to read slower than a lot of other people. Um, because my wife is visually oriented, so she can fly mm-hmm. through things visually. I, when I'm reading, I'm literally speaking it in my head as I'm going. So I'm reading at the speech at the speed of like a fast audiobook. What's so interesting about that is that you you said that the idea of getting you out on stage would have frightened you as a child. Oh yeah. But your inner monologue was performative. In other words, if, as you're reading, right? If if you're hearing your own voice in your head, there's a part of you that's orating. Yes. Right. And and you're use again using your voice. How beautiful. Yes. How beautiful that that translates and to I, what you do today. Yeah. That's interesting. It is orative, but I don't think it was ever thought of as orative to an audience. Mm-hmm. I think what happened was because my mom tended to read me The Hobbit when I was young, <laughs> the notion of oration right. mm-hmm. was a private event, mm-hmm. not a public one. 
That's interesting. And so the idea of speaking to another single mm-hmm. person mm-hmm. was not threatening at all. In mm-hmm. fact, that was a difference between me and my brother. My brother had a hard time articulating his feelings, mm-hmm. whereas I was an open book. Right. You know, if my mom, if I would say, go, oh, and my mom would go, what's wrong? I go, well, blah, 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 blah. <laughs> you know, it would all come out. Whereas my, my brother had a really more difficult time putting into words how he felt when he was younger, mm-hmm. you know. But so I was perfectly comfortable one on one. But you throw me up in front of a bunch of strangers. Oof, no, pressure was too much. Mm-hmm. So it totally depended on the context where that oration became um, comfortable or restrictive. But what's so interesting also to me is that the for you hearing, being able to translate what your mind is saying out loud. Right. Mm-hmm. Your mind is speaking to you. You make it out loud by putting it on paper. Mm-hmm. Right. When you're translating your own inner monologue. Mm-hmm. That's also a really organic track for you. Mm-hmm. It's more authentic. If yeah. you have to um, write more visually. Mm-hmm. Right. And sort of make it look a certain way and um, figure out how to put pen to paper or with a keyboard and it feels too external. It's probably mm-hmm. less authentic to you. Right, until what happens is when I have to write something that does need to be read, and then what happens is my wife, who is visually oriented, will come in and look at my writing and say, this is beautiful if you were on stage speaking, but it's too wordy. <laughs> like, visually, it's, it's, right. it slows a visual person down, mm-hmm. and then she would edit it down to make it visually more appealing, and I would look at it and go, yeah, I agree with you. <laughs> like, visually, that, you know, and I think C.S. Lewis even once said that. He did a series of lectures on the BBC, and they transcribed it, and he's like, I'm not sure the transcription works. Mm. I think I would have edited it for visual reading. Because it's different, you, you write differently mm-hmm. when you're speaking on the radio than right. when you're expecting someone to sit down and read it like a novel. Mm-hmm. But, so this is all very interesting, um, how, I, but, <laughs> because, but how did you get started doing this writing stuff because it was before I mean you're winning awards junior and senior year of high school but when did you start the writing um I wrote journals constantly um so for me even just writing in a journal and and being able to archive what happened in my day Mm -hmm. became a story but then how did you because you did say you were writing lots of poetry Mm -hmm. but that's a different thing than when you actually have to start writing dialogue which Mm -hmm. is oration right it is oration. I had been, by the time I was starting to work through playwriting at the end of my high school world, I had already read so many plays and been involved in so many plays as a performer that the writing of it made sense to me. But are you telling me that you didn't start writing your first play until that junior year when you won that third place? I think that's correct. Okay. I don't, just want to make sure. I, yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah. And I'm all, I mean, to, again, to be fair, I am from a family of writers and shrinks. Sure. So my father was writing, my father was writing books and I started editing his books for him mm-hmm. when I was, I want to say 14. So he would, fin- and, my fa- mm. and again, my father was writing on shame the na- and the nature of emotion. Okay. And as a psychiatrist and a theorist, th- this was not frog and toad. Right. <laughs> right. This was, you know, academic and psychological discourse. Right. Right. And and psychological theory on shame and the nature of emotion. And why did he want <clears throat> his 14 year old daughter to edit this? My father appreciated. First of all, he always made me feel that he appreciated my mind. Sure. And um, dinner table conversation was not catered to a child's mind. It was 
absolutely adult conversation. I remember my father saying, let's talk about Otto Kernberg, who was the one who coined the concept of borderline personality disorder. Now, and I'm like, cool, let's talk about it. Yeah. But, you know, he would write a chapter of his book and he would, I remember he would come in my room, he would toss it on my bed and say, got another chapter for you, need you to do some work. Well, and I'm sure you had all sorts of uh, ability and facility, but that doesn't necessarily mean you have experience. No, it didn't, but it gave me experience. Okay, because you would think that if you want someone editing your work, you, someone who has knowledge of the field or has some experience or some background, you know, it, simply being intelligent and capable is not the same as having a background of knowledge. So, calling a spade a spade, he absolutely had a professional editor after his 14-year-old daughter <laughs> got a hold of his chapters. Let me be really clear. Okay. However... The message was clear to me. The message was, you're bright enough to understand this. Mm -hmm. I want you to understand this. And I value your input. Mm. Those things mattered to me. Yeah. And set the stage for me to respect my own brain. Mm -hmm. Right? And I remained curious about what he was writing. And I did ask him questions about it. And mm -hmm. I did feel valued for my mind. Mm -hmm. Which mattered to me and ended up mattering quite a bit later in my life. Sure. As I'm you know, on stage and on screen and performing and most of the time, um, I guess, kind of um, typecast at the time as sort of like, oh, I'm sorry, I spilled that on myself. Oops, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and after a while, I, I really lost track of an identity as a relatively intelligent person with a curious academic mind. And so returning to, and I really never left, but returning to that core, core identity as a writer mm -hmm. mattered to me. Mm -hmm. And knowing that I had this background and I had been encouraged to think and to write and to be curious, mm -hmm. um, I think gave me the foundation to to not let that go, gotcha. if nothing else. Sure. Um, but yes, he had other professional editors. However, the onus was on me to do whatever proofreading I could do. And also I think he wanted to make sure that what he was writing was accessible. Sure. And my mom also wrote, she wrote a book at the time somewhere when I was a kid. She's written another one since. Mm. So I'm from a family of, again, writers and shrinks. So obviously I was screwed to begin with. I mean, again, <laughs> like, I, mean, I was an only child. I was, you know, everyone's confidant. Mm. I was overly performative and doing cartwheels in the parking lot. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I'm pretty much still the weirdo I was then. There you go. They just pay me for it now. <laughs> <laughs> monetize that. <laughs> pretty monetize. much. Pretty much. So then it was off to college, yes? Yes. I went to Tufts University. Okay. I was a double major in drama and English. Okay. Continuing to write and perform the mm -hmm. entire time. Um, I tried to have a minor. I would have had enough credits, but they wouldn't let me have two majors and a minor. But I also had a, I was moving toward a minor in African-American literature at the time. Um, that was just another, Ambitious. another passion. Um, but yeah, I, I did a lot of, um, a lot of writing and a lot of performing in school. I studied voice at the New England Conservatory of Music at the okay. same time. 
Um, there was one winter that I assisted the director of the Boston Lyric Opera. Oh, okay. Um, so I, I have kept myself very busy gotcha. throughout my world. <laughs> and then college, so college, you're, you're, you're writing, you're acting, mm-hmm. you're singing, mm-hmm. and then college is coming to a close. And College is coming to a close, and I, I went to study Shakespeare at the Stella Adler Conservatory in New York. Oh, okay. And um, while I was there through a series of sort of odd connections, I was offered an opportunity to meet with the, um, the head writer of One Life to Live. I had someone who oh. said, like, I think you should meet with this person, and I know this person. And I said, okay, that sounds great. It's a soap great. opera, yeah? Mm-hmm. Okay. Soap opera. That's right. I always have to make my joke about soap operas, which is, in my day, there was this thing called the soap operas, and <laughs> you turn on the television, and then you see the people, and then they're making out. <laughs> so they don't do that anymore, really. But um, Before we so had I, telenovelas, we had exactly. soap operas. <laughs> so I, I, uh, I met with Susie Betzohergen, and she was lovely, and, uh, and she said, I need to meet my casting director and she brought me in the next week and I met her casting director Sonia Nakori and um, this was really right out of college and this is like a kids don't try this at home story because this stuff just never happens but Sonia said um, you need an agent Mm -hmm. and um, you know she apparently saw something in me which was uh, lovely and compliment uh, flattering Um, and I'm so I'm so uncomfortable. I'm playing with my shoes as I'm saying. And it was compliment. Um, and so, <laughs> and she said, um, "Here are my five favorite agents in New York City. Go with my blessing. Tell them I sent you." And I met with all these agents, and I got an agent. And um, just a little, I would say, just a few months later, they found a role for me on One Life to Live, mm-hmm. um, and wanted me to to come join the show. And I had a recurring role in that show for about a year and a half. So you you got to the Stella Adler Conservatory, but it wasn't uh, a master's program, was it? No, it no. was just a summer program. Um, okay. Doing you know all all Shakespeare intensive stage combat. Oh, okay. So it was just a summer yeah, program. All it summer program, all Shakespeare. All right. So you were. It wasn't even like a year long program. Mm-mm. So you were just there. Nope. This is the. So you graduate from college. Yeah. <laughs> you go the summer program at the Stella yeah. Adler Conservatory for Shakespeare. For Shakespeare, and then. A casting director yeah. who works on One Life to Live mm-hmm. sees you and says, mm-hmm. uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So this is this. <laughs> Don't try this at home, uh-huh. kids. That's what I mean. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is, you know, when people ask me, you know, how do I get an agent? And I say, well, the best way is always to walk into an agent's office and say, hi, I've booked this role. Will you negotiate for mm-hmm. me? Mm-hmm. And that's not far from what happened to mm-hmm. you, which mm-hmm. is like when a, if a casting director mm-hmm. can basically vouch for your abilities, yeah. then the agents know you are instantly instantly marketable because the person who is making the hiring decisions has just said so. Absolutely. Any anybody she you know sent me to was happy to open their doors um you know to to let me come in and have an interview. Mm-hmm. And I I I picked the agency that I felt most connected with and and I was off and running. Were they all willing to sign you or were some of them not so much? I don't remember. I know that I I remember deciding between two. I okay. don't know if that means that I picked my two favorites or only yeah. two wanted me. But yeah. I remember I remember my decision was between two, and I, I went with um, Hardin Curtis and Associates. 
and they... I was with Hardin Kern Associates, you too. You were not. Yes, I was. You were not. <laughs> right out of, right oh, out of grad school, yeah, yeah. With Mary and Nancy, and yeah, yeah. they're wonderful. Oh. I ended up doing, uh, Mary's husband and I ended up doing a regional play together oh, wow. years later. Yeah, and it's, they're wonderful. They were lovely, yeah. and they were a great first agency sign with them? for me. What? When did you sign with them? 150 years ago. Christmas. Awesome. Like a Back in the Victorian years. era. Yeah. Back, back when we had... Yeah. I'm not going to do the voice again. <laughs> but but if you're... If, um, just just to have you enjoy how ridiculous my story continues to be. Uh-huh. Um, the way I got my commercial agents uh-huh. is just as ridiculous. Okay. So I... So I'm on the soap. Right. I'm living at, at my parents in Philadelphia, commuting back and forth to the soap. To New York City. Uh-huh. Huh. And at some point, I get an apartment. I finally move to New York, and I'm there. Uh-huh. I'm on that soap. I'm auditioning for other things. I don't remember what else was coming up at the time, but I was working some. But not enough to make a full living. When you're recurring on a soap, you're not contracted, so you don't have weekly income necessarily. Right. So you, you, you're only recurring, which meant that how often would you show up on the soap? I don't even remember at the time. It was enough that it was, you know, money, a, a, money, and, and a and a lovely way to kickstart a career. Yeah, um, enough that I felt involved in that world. Right, I didn't feel like I didn't belong. If that makes sense, right. but um, it was a heavily recurring character, I believe. But, um, but I needed to make More. dough so yeah. that I could afford my expensive New York apartment. Mm-hmm. So because my Father, this is the side of the family that was into Metropolitan Opera, mm. also enophiles, um, so very into wine and ah. wine tasting. And um, it's because I had all this awareness of wine, mm-hmm. I was well suited for um, <laughs> to work in a wine shop. Before that, the only other job that I had attempted was a temp agency mm-hmm. that said that while I did have my t- typing tutorial from my dad, and I really was a speedy typer, I was not good enough to be in as a typist someplace, mm-hmm. they thought, you know what? You're well-suited for character work, which meant that I dressed up as a giant Tweety Bird mm. and jumped around a hotel lobby mm. to entice people to come in mm-hmm. to the hotel. Mm-hmm. Right. That didn't last long. <laughs> also, the Tweety Bird head, I'm just going to tell you right now, was so much heavier than I was, mm. and I would topple over. Mm-hmm. That wasn't good for anybody. No. You don't want to see a headless Tweety. No. So I was working at this wine shop where they'd never had a woman work before, okay. ever. And that meant that they wanted me to sell wine to all of their uh, male patrons. Uh, so that happened. So, um, In a Tweety Bird costume, no less, right? But no. No. <laughs> Now you're just Sorry. making stuff up. <laughs> Sorry. No. Keep going. No. <laughs> Sometimes I miss that costume. No, I don't. It was really it smelled terrible. So, wine. so selling I'm, wine. I'm selling wine. So I'm I'm selling wine at Acre Maryland Condit, which is the oldest wine shop in America. And um and if there were if ever a male customer walked in, be like Julie, Julie, go over there. Okay. Hi. Mm. <laughs> Can I sell you some wine? Mm-hmm. So this guy walks in one day. And he's, he's got toys with him. And I mean, he takes what I remember as a projectile Barbie, but it probably wasn't. I think it was a fairy with wings, but he wound it up and it spun all over the store. And he's got other toys. He's just got toys. He's Ira the Toy Man. Ira the Toy Man comes up to me and, and I sell him a 
1991 Maritage, I think. So, um, so we're chatting, and he says, "Oh, you know, you're adorable." Like, okay, thank you. And what do you do? And I said, "Well, you know, I'm I'm here, but I'm also I'm also an actor." And he's like, "Okay, okay," you know, doesn't believe me. Yeah. The next day he comes in. He's like, "I was at the gym." And I looked up at the TV. You were on One Life to Live. I'm like, I wasn't lying to you. I yeah. am an actor. Yeah. And he was like, listen, you're, you're really good. And I was like, well, thanks. And he said, there's a, there's a woman I work out next to at the gym. She's a manager. <laughs> and I showed her you. And I, can, I, can I get you a meeting with her? I was like, okay. So this is my other don't try this at home. Right. So I have a meeting with this manager, mm -hmm. and she's like, you're great. Um, I mostly work with kids. I don't have anything for you, but I want to do something for you. What do you need? Hmm. And I said, well, I could use a commercial agent. Mm -hmm. She said, cool. So she made a call over to CESD, which there at the time go. was CED yep. in New York. And uh, and they signed me, and I actually gave her um, sort of a finder's fee commission for many years until she said, you have to stop paying me now. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> so I actually got to CESD because mm. Ira the Toy Man walked into the wine shop. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, don't try this at home. <laughs> wow. That's good. Wow. Yeah. No, I mean... And isn't it funny, that thing? I mean, like, I, when I was in New York City and I was uh, acting on a show on Broadway and I met this person through, like, she was the daughter of uh, a friend of my father's and she was a lawyer in New York City mm -hmm. and she's like, oh, you know, right. what do you do? And I'm an actor. Oh, you're trying to be an actor? No, I'm, I'm on Broadway. Are you trying to be a lawyer? Like, what, <laughs> like, oh, like, my God, what, I love it. Like, yeah. What are you talking about? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. but it is, you know, they like to say work begets work. Right. And uh, <laughs> there, but it's very interesting. It's like you have to, sh you have to prove your bona fides. You have to show that you yeah. can actually put your money where your mouth is. Uh, and when you can, people's response is usually incredibly positive. It's like, oh, you do good work. All right. Let's see if we can do good work together. So I agree with everything you're saying, and I'm going to add one more thing to it. Sure. So I, I really love what I do. And I, I know that I've studied a lot. I've, I, you know, I mean, I, I studied in college. I studied outside. I've, you know, I'm constantly reading. I'm, I feel like I'm um, well-versed in many of the things that I do. But I don't think I'm any better than the other people out there doing what I do. Mm -hmm. And I understand that a degree of success kind of flies in the face of what I'm saying. However... Mm. I don't think those people gave me a chance because they thought I was this incredible performer. Mm -hmm. I think they gave me a chance because I was kind and mm -hmm. because I was friendly and because I was engaging and engaged. Mm -hmm. And my greatest superpower has been, you know, a combination of curiosity and empathy mm -hmm. since I was born. And so I think that part of who I am, to be honest with you, is a greater... Um, variable and mm. catalyst for success for me than anything else. I mm. mean, I, I love what I do, and I, I do feel confident in my abilities. Mm -hmm. But um, I don't, I don't think of myself as so much better than others. And there are so many mm. people who are struggling out there, and many of them are probably phenomenal, mm. and 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 maybe worlds better than I could be. Mm. But 
being able to engage with another human being and um, be genuinely curious in a conversation and hopefully operate with genuine kindness and gratitude, I think those things matter a lot. Mm. I'm very glad you said that um, because I think one of, I, I feel like that our dominant uh, school system the way we tend to do schools is very performance based. Mm -hmm. And this idea is that if you can perform to a certain level, then that guarantees you a certain test result. And then there is this sort of uh, false narrative that then that will translate into some sort of some form of success. Of course. Right? Like if I get all the best grades and get the mm -hmm. highest SAT scores, I'll go to Harvard and then my, my life is secured. Well, it's all evidence based, right? You're yeah. looking at what's, what's quantifiable. Right. In a very left brain analytical way. Mm -hmm without taking into account any emotional intelligence mm -hmm. or fascination, mm -hmm. which is harder to quantify. Absolutely. And I think, I th I'm very glad you said that because I don't want people thinking, oh my God, I have to do whatever the voice acting equivalent would be of, you know, 20 pirouettes in a fuete mm -hmm. in dance or some, mm -hmm. you, know, you know, triple gainer in skating no. before I'll be considered for this thing. Right. It's um, <clears throat> because... The fascination and the, as you put it, the empathy, the ability to collaborate with others effectively <laughs> um, is so important and is so rarely valued in our schooling. Mm -hmm. And so often I see students of mine who come and think, okay, they've got to check all the boxes and they've got to perform all the things. And it's like, oh, no, they never taught you to collaborate, did they? Right. They, they never taught you that simply executing things with, within, with a high degree of accuracy mm -hmm. is not a substitution for fascination. I mean, I think I, I agree with everything you're saying with every fiber of my being. Because, I, you know, when I was asked to be on a, um, a panel that was like the business of voice acting. Mm -hmm. I don't remember if it was WonderCon or Comic-Con. And... You know, people who know me were just like, that was so you. Because, you know, other people on the panel are saying, you know, these are the classes you take, and this is how you do a demo, and this is how you handle the microphone. And I was like, well, <laughs> I said, competition and competitiveness and jealousy are no match for inspiration and aspiration. Mm -hmm. And to me, it's about being able to be inspired by the people around you to be interested in how you can join another person's um, joy, to be mm. honest with you, um, and to collaborate and to want to be part of a community and to be kind. Mm -hmm. And those things to me, no, they are not the only things you need to have a successful world. But I don't, I don't think Ira the Toy Man, you know, came into the wine shop and, you know, was only thinking... A, visually, is this person going to be a successful on-camera performer because of the way she looks, mm -hmm. right? There are lots of people who are, you know, marginally attractive and may be able to perform somewhere. And I, I don't do on-camera anymore, but I understand that was a factor back in the day. Mm -hmm. Back in the day! When I, so <laughs> I, think, I think it had to do with the way I engaged him as a person. Mm -hmm. And I was curious about his toys and why he was flying them around my shop and mm -hmm. <laughs> somewhere in the discourse you know some some part of our conversation was engaging enough to him to make him want to come back and say hey I want to I want to hook you up with this person I want to see if there's a manager you can meet with mm -hmm. right and that has to do with how 
I was interacting with him as me. Yes. Less about performance. Does that make sense? Yes. yes he saw me in TV and he went, okay, well, somebody's vetted her. Somebody's, right. ABC is giving her money. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, but, but there's another part that I think does get lost. And the business, I think, the business side of it gets lost too. Yeah, because there was an there's an authenticity to the connection that you had with him exactly. in the moment that yeah. made him uh, feel like it was a worthwhile endeavor to mm -hmm. engage with you on this. Yeah, and even if I was doing cartwheels in the parking lot, they're always real. You know, that whole thing about being too much, which I said to you, which mm -hmm. I have been, and mm -hmm. I, I understand, and I now embrace about myself because I have no <laughs> choice at this point. You know, that... That unbridled enthusiasm, all of that has always been very real. Mm -hmm. my, um, my closest friends, a couple of them, my best friend, always tells the story that she did not like me when she first met me. Mm. Because she said, no, I don't believe that anybody can be that nice or can be that mm. enthusiastic and have it be real. Mm -hmm. And I was just jumping up and down and excited and hugging people and just so happy to be alive and, <laughs> and so full of joy when I see joy and certainly full of sorrow when that's the emotion of the day. Mm -hmm. But in, when she got to know me, she went, oh, sh this is all real. Yeah. Oh, okay. okay. <laughs> I get it now. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm aware of that in myself. And now I embrace it. I embrace being lots of different things. Isn't that wonderful, the idea of being true enough to yourself that even if you lie outside the bounds of what current society thinks is sort of normal, mm -hmm. that you go, no, that's really how I am. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, I did not speak as a young child for a very long time. Really? Yeah. And my parents are actually worried that maybe I was having developmental problems. And they took me to a doctor. I don't remember any of this. Mm -hmm. um, but they took me to a doctor. The doctor said, no, he's just waiting. And sure mm -hmm. enough, I was. And what I do remember is when I spoke, I did not speak dada, mama, yeah. papa. I spoke, can I have some scrambled eggs, please? Yep. Like what came out of my mouth yeah. was full sentences and full. I was just sorting things out on my own. You were listening, Crispin. Yeah. Well, that's the audio part of you. As you said, everything mm -hmm. you do is with your ears, right? You That's the listening. one I lead with, yeah. You were listening. I tend to lead auditorily. Kinesthetic is mm -hmm. the next one. Visual is usually the last. Mm -hmm. um, uh, that uh, I've had to I've had to learn a lot of visual mm -hmm. skills. Um, this is all fascinating um, because and and I really I want to I want to emphasize, especially my listeners, we haven't even gotten to the voice acting yet. <laughs> but this is the foundation of what everything is. Like th this this your fascination and you understanding your own uh, process and what, ins what is inspiring to you and being true to what, uh, to the things that you want to pursue mm -hmm. and not limiting yourself works in any field of uh, pursuit um, and, and works on uh, no matter what you're trying to accomplish, whether it be voice acting or anything else. Well, I think that's, one of the other pieces of, I don't know, um, I would say inspiration that I've come to later in my life, which is that it's not only okay to be many things, it's wonderful to be yeah. many things. And, you know, I was into photography when I was in high school and I, you know, there were contests and yes, I, like that, these were all things that I poured myself into and they were, they were so important to me. Mm -hmm. And I remember being told, you have to choose something. What do you want to be when you grow up? Mm -hmm. What do you want to be? And I said this on um, Rob Paulson's um, Talking Tunes once, and I'll repeat it here, which is that I feel like we're told, 
at some point you have to pick a color. Mm-hmm. Here, here are the, here's the box of 164 Crayola crayons. Mm-hmm. Pick a color, and this mm-hmm. is your color. Yeah. I don't want to pick a color. Yeah, I, w- I want to draw with all the colors. Mm-hmm. I want to use them all. So I do love writing, and I do love photography, and I do love performing. And I happen to also love psychology. Yeah. And my world is now a blend of, of the things that I love. The photography really isn't anymore. But, there you, go. you know, um, mm-hmm. I didn't think it was okay to be an integrated self. I thought we had to be these either separate selves, right? Mm-hmm. I have to, okay, so over here is my writing self and over here is my performing self. And, and I don't know, the past, I don't know, handful of years... I'm in this this state of gratitude for being able to be many things and finding the intersection. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people will say, you know, how do you get into voice acting? I want to be a voice actor. I want that to be my profession. Mm-hmm. I don't, you know, there, I feel really, really, really fortunate. I know you do too. To be able to make a living as a voice actor. I can make a living as a voice actor. It's a pretty incredible thing. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that that's going to be the case for every single person out there. Mm -hmm. But you know what? We can approximate the things we love to do and have that fill a need. So is every person who's passionate about voice acting going to make it their solo mainstay, breadwinning, this is their career? Mm -hmm. I don't know. Mm-hmm. But can you explore it? Can you do some voice acting? Can you play around with it? Can you do some radio stuff? You want to you want to see what's happening if you're, you know, in the non-union space, just see what's happening out there, test it out. Mm-hmm. Why does it have to be that you are either at the top of a career in one interest or you have to let it go? Mm-hmm. I don't believe in that anymore. Yeah. You can approximate it, you can enjoy it, you can add it to your life. Performance can be that way. Art can be that way. Writing can be that way. But defining ourselves by one career or one interest is, I think, an old-school way of defining ourselves. I'm not into it anymore. Well, it makes it easier for the employer. Interesting. What right. do you mean? That the idea of being... The standardization of schooling and the idea that a lot of our schooling is designed uh, sort of along old Prussian models of schooling to make sure that you have sort of dutiful cogs that go in the wheel, mm-hmm. which is the opposite of a liberal arts education. Right. And liberal arts education is to cr- create a breadth of knowledge because what they're trying to do is create a Roman administrator mm-hmm. who can run a Roman town. I mean, that's why it was <laughs> developed back in the day. Um, so, and, and I think it is, I have heard that it is a particularly American failing, mm. this obsession with you have to choose a career for the rest of your life, mm-hmm. which is ironic because I believe it was Ben Franklin who said, <laughs> you need to change your career every 20 years, at least, if not earlier. Um, so I think that's really great. Julie's words about not limiting yourself really hit home with me. Limiting yourself is a way to make people around you more comfortable. Often, society wants you to be docile and obedient so you don't rock the boat. Julie certainly heard that sort of message when she was growing up. People around her told her that she was too much, and even her best friend thought that no one could be as enthusiastic and sincerely excited about life as Julie was. The fact of the matter is, we are all far more remarkable than we realize, and it serves nobody to hide the light of our personality and passions under a bushel. You should nurture your excitement and enthusiasm because it will carry you towards the activities that will be the most satisfying in your life. 
Sometimes it may seem like your interests are at odds with each other, or it may not be immediately obvious what relationship they have to each other. The key is to figure out how to integrate all those different aspects of yourself in a harmonious way. It's more alchemy than science, and it often requires some out-of-the-box thinking. For instance, Julie realized that she had a passion for performing. She was fascinated with it from the age of six. However, she also knew that she wanted to write. On top of that, she had the desire to go get her master's degree in clinical psychology. Conventional wisdom would say that she should choose one of those things, focus on it, and make that her career. However, if she had limited herself in that way, it would have squelched her enthusiasm. Without enthusiasm, the chances of her being successful in any of those careers would be virtually non-existent. So even if she had buckled down and decided to only pursue acting or only pursue writing, neither would have worked. Her acting would have suffered without the emotional nourishment she would have gotten from writing, and her writing would have suffered had she never allowed herself to enjoy performing in front of people. I also have a feeling that her psychology degree helped enrich her pursuit of both acting and writing. You should remember not to limit yourself when embarking on your own creative journey. At their core, your interests are complementary because they make up the totality of who you are as a person. Making some of your interests off-limits in order to satisfy other people's expectations doesn't help anyone. This doesn't mean that you should disregard job divisions when working in the industry. When Julie is employed as a writer, it's probably not appropriate for her to jump into the recording booth and show an actor how they should perform a character. Conversely, when she's hired as a voice actor, it would most likely be inappropriate for her to step out of the booth and rewrite the script. That's just professional courtesy. Allowing yourself to be multifaceted simply means that you do not limit yourself psychologically. Don't cut off parts of your identity just to make other people happy. Instead, nurture your interests and explore them with curiosity and commitment. Then, allow your varied talents to enrich and inform each other, no matter what job description you end up having. Who knows? You may end up discovering or inventing a role that's just right for you. The more you follow through on your passions, the more likely you will find innovative and elegant ways to integrate all the things that fascinate you into your life. Next time, in the second part of our interview, Julie and I talk about the nuts and bolts of voice acting. She shares with us a fascinating story about the first time she decided to get online and read the comments about her performance on the television show One Life to Live. She found a nasty comment from one of the viewers who was very critical about the sound of her voice. She decided to take that criticism and use it as inspiration to see if she could launch a voice acting career. She also shares with us an amazing recording of herself when she was a young girl actually trying out different voices while telling knock-knock jokes. It not only gives an insight into her fascination with performing, but it's adorable as well. So, see you in the next episode, and until then, I wish you all the best in your voice acting endeavors. Take care. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.